Hi, my name is Brian King. I'm the Robert Porter Distinguished Professor of Child Psychiatry and the Vice Chair for Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco. And I'm delighted to be here to walk you through uh, developing autism therapeutics. Um, what we're aiming to do today is to take a high-level view of the process of the development of therapeutics in autism spectrum disorder, and we'll highlight the objectives. Uh, in order to develop therapeutics, you need to know what it is you're aiming at. And one of the things that um, we have considerable amount of time thinking about clinically is what the common therapeutic targets are in autism spectrum disorder. Also want to highlight some of the rate limiting steps that we've experienced over time in terms of uh, progress to date and challenges that have limited that progress and use this opportunity to highlight where the future is going to take us and where the emerging opportunities are in this field. So it's good to start out with what it is that we're talking about in terms of autism and uh, the definition of the disorder has evolved over time and at the same time it has uh, maintained its fidelity to the original descriptions of the disorder. Uh, Leo Connor described uh, the criteria that distinguished this rare condition back in the 1940s and among the criteria that he put forward were um, an obsessive uh, desire for the maintenance of sameness, an anxious uh, desire to retain sameness. And you'll see that in the current definition. Um, there are two criteria that the DSM-5 uh, calls out for the diagnosis of autism. Uh, one is deficits in social communication and social interaction. And the three areas that we need to see in order to uh, satisfy this uh, major criterion are deficits in social-emotional reciprocity, in nonverbal communicative behaviors, and in developing, maintaining, and understanding relationships. You can see how these stack on to one another, that uh, particularly uh, the first two criteria would almost always lead to problems developing, maintaining, and understanding relationships. These need to occur across multiple contexts and multiple settings, and this, uh, this difficulty needs to significantly impact an individual's function. Um, and then the other major criterion uh, is restricted repetitive patterns of behavior or interests. And here of the four criteria that can be present, one needs at least two in order to meet diagnostic criteria. So we're looking for typically stereotyped and repetitive motor movements or repetitive speech, uh, idiosyncratic speech, insistence on sameness, uh, as Connor called out in the very first uh, definitions, highly restricted interests, and these can be on areas that might not necessarily be unusual in and of themselves. So one might have an interest in things relating to the Titanic, for example. Um, but the degree and focus on that interest is characteristically um, unique in autism in that it can become all-consuming. The entire world is focused around one of these particular interests. And sensory hyper or hyposensitivities were added in the DSM-5. They had been present in the earliest descriptions, had fallen off the radar in terms of criteria, and now have been added back. Um, one comment about the diagnosis of autism over time is that it is not unlike this image that one sees on the approach into the city of San Francisco 
to the airport from the north, you circle around uh, these wetlands, and you have a very characteristic picture of the wetlands. And uh, frankly, it's, I think everyone would agree that these are wetlands. You, you can recognize them from 30,000 feet. But when you drill down into the, the weeds, as it were, of the wetlands, um, and think particularly about uh, where the boundaries are around the wetlands, it becomes more challenging. So um, we can see that there, you know, there, there are pretty discrete boundaries around what appears to separate the wetlands from, uh, from the uh, ocean. Uh, but as the tide comes in and out, that boundary is going to change. And if you, um, if you look up here, um, one could argue, are these uh, wetlands as well, uh, where you don't have quite as much exposure as, as down below? And uh, one could spend hours trying to figure out where the boundary is around the wetlands. And that problem exists in autism as well. So while we have pretty discrete criteria, um, and it's easy to come to consensus about whether someone has autism or not in most cases. Uh, the way the diagnosis is made, as you saw, is based on the behaviors that we see and not what the underlying pathophysiology is. And it could very well be that the behaviors that rise to the level of meeting the criteria for autism are, again, not unlike the wetlands here, um, where in some instances it's obvious and in some instances, the pathophysiology may be the same, but may not carry forward to the same degree in terms of behavioral expression. And you're left with this uh, problem that will be resolved in the future when we have um, diagnoses, uh, diagnostic criteria that incorporate some of the biology. And we'll hear about that uh, in Dr. State's talk. Um, the diagnostic boundaries around autism are very likely to be redrawn. We'll come back to this image, but in summary, the diagnosis is reliable, uh, but the boundaries are not discrete. And this is important as we think about the development of therapeutics. Again, if our focus is on the manifest of behaviors, uh, it may ultimately be different, or it's likely to be different, than if we're focusing on a treatment that's based on a knowledge of what the underlying pathophysiology is. So the other um, fact that has emerged over time is that autism uh, does not prevent uh, the likelihood of experiencing other psychiatric disorders that are common in the general population. In fact, um, in this study that was done in uh, Kaiser Permanente Northern California database, where uh, Lisa Crone and colleagues identified 1,500 adults with autism, and identified a matched uh, control group of 15,000 typically developing uh, adults without autism, and simply asked the question, if we look in our database at medical conditions, particularly diagnoses uh, that have been identified in the group with autism, and also in this control group, how do they compare? And so you see in the typical, uh, in the control group that we have uh, something on the order of 10% um, of the population with depression diagnoses, another equal number with anxiety diagnoses, um, suicide attempts, schizophrenia, and the like. We essentially have other chapters in that DSM book that I showed you earlier. When we overlay the population with autism, here in blue, 
what you see is that virtually for every one of these psychiatric illnesses, the prevalence in the setting of autism is greater than it is in the general population. And so um, in the next slide, just calling this out in terms of odds ratios, what you see is that if you're an adult with autism, the likelihood that you um, are going to be diagnosed with uh, schizophrenia-like disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, psychotic illness, and so on, and particularly important things uh, like suicide attempts are all elevated in the setting of autism. These, of course, are also potential therapeutic targets. So um, as we're moving through the possibilities here, we have autism as the core disorder, but we have uh, these co-occurring conditions. Now, this is a slide uh, taken from Matt Siegel's group uh, that um, incorporates reasons for psychiatric hospitalization in children and adolescents with autism at centers that have been specifically set up to support uh, children with autism and their psychiatric illness. And what you see here are, in fact, not psychiatric diagnoses, but a list of uh, maladaptive behaviors that have resulted in the need for psychiatric hospitalization. So we have problems like aggression and self-injurious behavior and the like that uh, are so interfering that they require an inpatient psychiatric stay. And these, again, are uh, common targets for potential therapeutics. One common measure that has been used in many clinical trials is the aberrant behavior checklist. And it's a 58-item checklist that has a number of subscales that have been identified based on factor analysis. And this is just one of the five factors of this scale that's been called the irritability subscale, uh, because many of the items suggest that there may be underlying irritability. Irritable and whiny is actually one of the uh, specific uh, items on the survey. But what you see is there's a mix of other uh, behaviors here as well that could include mood lability, aggression, self-injurious behavior, and the like. Um, and we'll come back to this. But again, um, the fact that this, out, this is often used as an outcome measure in clinical trials speaks to how these behavioral problems can also be targets for therapeutics. So where are we? Well, um, we have uh, therapeutic targets that could be the core features of autism. And here we're talking literally about the two major criteria that form the basis for the disorder. So can we imagine that there would be uh, pharmacologic agents that would specifically target social communication difficulties. Um, perhaps there are behavioral intervention strategies that would target social communication deficits. Are there pharmacologic or other therapies that we might look at that are specifically targeting repetitive, restrictive behaviors? Again, those are the core features. Um, we also have therapeutic targets that include the psychiatric disorders that I highlighted from the Kaiser database. And there, again, multiple groups have described increased risk for psychiatric disorders in autism. And then we have therapeutic targets that involve uh, other behavior or other uh, factors that don't necessarily rise to a specific psychiatric diagnosis, um, but nonetheless could be significant targets. And moreover, none of these uh, completely overlap. And so we have a very complicated mix, potentially, of uh, targets that people are exploring in clinical trials. So uh, in summary, the illnesses are common, behavioral disturbances common, and of course, the core features are common. Now, 
Medication is uh, often used in the setting of autism. In fact, multiple studies have looked at the prevalence of the use of psychotropic drugs, and current evidence uh, supports the use of medication for many of these targets that I just highlighted. There are as yet no drugs that have gained uh, specific indications for the treatment of core features of autism. So if we're asked today, what is the medication that you use for autism? The answer is, there is no such thing. Um, but there are lots of medications that are used in the setting of autism. And age data, as I mentioned, indicates that these medications are used quite commonly. In fact, uh, virtually every study that's looked at the prevalence of medication use in autism comes back with rates that vary from 30 to upwards of 70%, as was true in this study. In fact, in this particular uh, data set taken from a Medicaid database uh, in, the, um, in Colorado, um, over 70% of children had received at least one psychotropic medication by the age of eight. And what you see here are the, the top three categories or classes of medication that are most commonly used, antidepressants, stimulants, and tranquilizers, antipsychotic drugs. What I want to highlight on this slide is also the, um, the date. So this particular uh, data comes from 2007. And the reason I wanted to share the data from 2007 as opposed to more current data, which absolutely exists, is to highlight the fact that these data have not changed in over a decade, that these three classes of drugs have been and remain the most widely prescribed drugs in the setting of autism. And it's, um, it's actually a, um, uh, an indictment, really, of the progress that we've made as a field in terms of our identification of therapeutics. And I want to talk for a minute about what some of the rate-limiting steps have been and highlight that uh, irritability uh, has been one of the most widely studied indications for pharmacotherapy. So a number of studies have been focused on irritability as a target. Um, and so if we pull out irritability for an example, I want to make another point about the process of identifying therapeutics. And we'll change that irritability circle to an eight ball. So the, uh, the point in billiards is that when you have the opportunity to sink the eight ball, you have to actually declare where it's going to go. So you have to say that it's going in the corner pocket or the side pocket, or you just have to, you, you need to declare a pocket. Um, and if it goes in that pocket, you win. And if it goes in a different pocket, you lose. Um, this sadly is, uh, is true of clinical trials as well. So what we need to do as investigators is to identify what our primary outcome is before we start the trial, before we take that shot. And if we find evidence that our primary outcome improves uh, as a result of the intervention, we win. Um, if we don't, um, that's too bad. And it can take five years to complete one of these large clinical trials in the population with autism. Um, there's a lot riding on getting that call right up front before you go down this path. Um, and what happens is that um, sometimes you're right. But what I wanted to illustrate on this slide 
which was one of the pivotal trials that led to risperidone getting an indication for the treatment of irritability in autism because um, irritability was the, uh, was the primary outcome. And you can see that the improvement in red, so the size of the bar correlates with the, the size of the drop in, in score of the irritability subscale that I showed you earlier. So significant change in the irritability subscale associated with receipt of risperidone. Um, but what you also see is that hyperactivity significantly improved. If we had done this trial and not seen the change in irritability, but that the signal for hyperactivity had carried through as significant, it would still be a failed trial. While we could say that in our secondary analysis, we had identified that hyperactivity improved, the, the best you could conclude at the end of the day is that we should do another study and focus on hyperactivity as our primary outcome so that we could move the process forward. Um, so one could argue about um, the threshold here, but the point is that um, the identification of therapeutics and moving them forward to a place where you can actually um, get them into the um, uh, uh, clinical use because of indications that the FDA or other body is conferring on the drug require at least three of these pivotal trials. Um, and, and you can imagine that this process could unfold over a number of years and that there could be drugs uh, for which there may be a positive signal that are not moving forward because that first bet on the primary outcome um, was wrong and that uh, eight ball went into a, a side pocket instead of the corner that was called. Um, so that's a problem uh, just in terms of the structure uh, moving forward. Another area that I think uh, is important to comment on, as I showed you earlier about whether co-occurring psychiatric disorders, um, that, you know, that they can be targets of treatment in the setting of autism. So we have a situation here where we have um, ADHD that's uh, in the setting of autism and we have ADHD in the general population. And a question that logically could be asked is, if we already know what works for ADHD, we have dozens and dozens of clinical trials that support the use of stimulants, for example, um, and other drugs as well. Why can't we just use those therapeutics for the ADHD and autism? Do we really need to do um, independent studies of ADHD and autism in order to um, move the field forward? And the answer is mixed. So in one of the pivotal trials associated with, or the largest trials associated with stimulants in the setting of autism, um, here the research units on pediatric psychopharmacology, or RUP trial, um, revealed that in about half of cases, uh, methylphenidate uh, was effective. So 50% of the children who received active treatment or methylphenidate responded, and 19% um, of those who received placebo respond, responded to placebo. Um, and so this is a significant outcome. Um, interestingly, um, nearly a fifth of those kids in the trial uh, had to drop out because of adverse events associated with the receipt of the active treatment um, in the autism group. 
Now we can compare this to a trial of ADHD alone, the multimodal treatment of ADHD study, uh, which was the largest of its kind. And in this study, what you see is that the response was much better. 70% of the kids with ADHD responded to methylphenidate. The placebo response was half of what it was in um, the autism study. And I, can't, I couldn't even put the words of the text in that tiny little slice that has 2% there, which were the dropouts due to adverse events. And so what, what I think clearly is represented here is that, in fact, we probably can't just walk straight over from ADHD to ADHD and autism, that there are some very important differences in terms of how these populations are responding to the receipt of the active treatment, um, particularly in terms of the ability to even tolerate the medicine itself. One of the things that um, has also limited our progress as a field is that um, Studies like these um, end when you call in the jury at the end of the five-year clinical trial. And so um, what you're left with is um, these data. And what we need as a field is to take a look at this 20%, for example, and ask, well, so they clearly are very different within this universe of people with autism, they've demonstrated that they are very sensitive to this drug. We have a physiological probe, if you will, that we have uh, just evaluated. So what should we use in this situation to treat the ADHD? This arguably is the most informative outcome from this trial. And sadly, you know, um, people disappear and go their separate ways after the after the trials are complete. But going forward, we need to anticipate that we have a, another therapeutic lined up that we can look at for those who don't respond to the first uh, intervention. So um, there have also been clinical trials that have looked at um, core features, and I wanted to highlight one. I told you earlier that um, antidepressants were among the most widely prescribed drugs in the setting of autism. They still are. They have been for the past decade. The largest clinical trial that we did looking at the use of an antidepressant uh, targeting repetitive behaviors in autism revealed no difference between active treatment and placebo. What you can see here in terms of the curves is that they are um, completely overlapping. Um, so no hint even of uh, difference favoring active treatment. Um, so this obviously was a trial that didn't yield a positive outcome in terms of supporting the use of antidepressants for repetitive behaviors. But, but how do we reconcile the fact that these drugs are still among the most widely prescribed in this population when we have no data that supports their effectiveness at least for repetitive behaviors. And so one of the other areas that this illustrated in terms of problems with clinical trials is the placebo response. So the higher the placebo response, the more difficult it becomes to identify the separation between that and the active treatment. Um, with a large placebo response in a trial, you have to enroll um, significantly more subjects in order to be able to capture you know, a smaller difference between active treatment 
and the placebo. And what I've shown you on this uh, slide are the, the numbers, uh, the placebo response numbers across a number of autism trials where you see that um, it's not uncommon at all to see placebo responses in the 20% range. Um, and in some studies, when that response rate goes upwards of 30 or, you know, in some cases even 40 or 50, the chance of seeing a signal with your active treatment um, becomes uh, almost nil. Um, so there have been active efforts in the field to look at ways to mitigate or reduce the placebo response. And um, one of those has been to look back and see what factors might lead to a greater likelihood of placebo response. And one of the things that we've identified is the illness burden. So if you come into a trial uh, looking at irritability, for example, and your irritability scores are relatively low, the likelihood of response to placebo is significantly greater than it is if you come into a trial with uh, much higher irritability scores. And there's another thing, um, and that is that the populations that are coming into these clinical trials are very heterogeneous. So we have some uh, conditions, and you'll hear more about this from Dr. State, uh, that are associated with identifiable genetic uh, uh, factors that contribute risk. And some disorders are very much associated with a greater likelihood of autism. Fragile X syndrome, for example, uh, where the prevalence of autism in Fragile X may be upwards of 30% of the population. Rett syndrome is another neurogenetic disorder that's been associated with uh, autism symptoms. And um, that's like comparing apples and oranges when we bring, if we were to do a clinical trial and, and allow people in with fragile X and Rett syndrome, um, we would not expect them to respond in the same way to therapeutics. Increasingly, molecular genetics is highlighting um, that there are glutamatergic abnormalities in autism um, and that abnormalities can end up either um, in the place of um, hyperexcitability or um, hypoexcitability. And your therapeutic is going to move you in one of those two directions. But if you have a mix of some people getting better while other people are getting worse, it gets washed out in your overall signal. So you can see here the beginnings of identifying how important it is to know what the underlying genetic background is for some of these trials. And in fact, um, where we're at, um, going back to the, um, the wetlands, is um, while we can identify the universe of people with autism, we need to be much better about being able to identify where we're starting out in terms of the underlying pathophysiology or severity, because the pathway out is going to be very different depending on where you're starting. Um, and so there have been multiple attempts to focus on heterogeneity. And want to, uh, want to speak about that uh, in a moment here, but again, back to the wetlands. You can well imagine that if your goal is to extricate yourself from being stuck in the wetlands somewhere, that your path out is going to be very different if you're you know, stuck in one of these uh, areas in the, in the midst versus one of these major canals or you know, further out uh, near the exit. Um, in fact, the, uh, the process that we've, that we've been using over the last decades is not unlike uh, the Marco Polo game, 
where you, with successive approximations, uh, and certainly clinically, this is the strategy, you try something, you say Marco, and you listen for where the polo is coming from, and that moves you closer to getting to a better place. Um, but if you wanted to replicate that pathway at the end of the day, put up an algorithm for this is how you find um, Polo or Marco, whoever's, uh, whoever you're after in this game, um, that is no way to, um, to move forward in a reliable, reproducible manner. And so people are looking at biomarkers, um, biomarkers that can help parse the heterogeneity in autism, um, identifying individuals that are high risk for autism because of underlying genetic or other factors, for example, um, help us narrow in on a specific subset of individuals with autism, um, identify biomarkers that suggest who's going to respond to this treatment that you're interested in within the universe, etc. And some of those that are moving forward as active candidates involve EEG abnormalities, for example. And this is just one example, but um, multiple investigators have shown that there are differences in uh, EEG power that characterize some individuals with autism. And so um, might we use this as a potential sorting function, not a diagnostic measure to say who has autism and who doesn't, but a sorting function for who gets into our trial or not, who we're interested in. And just as one example, um, where EEG um, uh, was obtained pre and post intervention, this for a um, psychosocial intervention, the um, uh, Denver START model, shows um, kids' EEG profiles uh, who are typically developing and kids with autism who received community intervention, when you look at those who received the Early Start Denver model, you see that their EEG profiles match uh, those with typical development. And so um, one could potentially use this as even an outcome measure to get an early signal back on a trial uh, that doesn't require perhaps um, months of exposure to your therapeutic of interest and potentially accelerate the drug development process. With autism, I think there's also interest, increasing interest in other biomarkers like sorting biomarkers, um, as those I've just highlighted with EEG, or process biomarkers. If you're way upstream and thinking about, is this a drug that um, may be worth looking at, before you go into a clinical trial, you might want to establish that the drug actually is reaching its target in the brain and look for a measure of target engagement um, that would save you all of the years of Marco Polo uh, in order to get to the, to the uh, outcome that you're hoping to achieve. Obviously, if the drug doesn't engage its target, it's not something that you want to move forward. So where are we at? Well, um, I keep coming back to the complexity here because um, there are any number of places, potentially thousands, a thousand genes potentially, that um, might discriminate one group from another. But as you look at the wetlands carefully, you also see that there are pathways that uh, exist that um, take you out of the wetlands potentially. So there's been increasing attention on pathways uh, in the brain uh, functional pathways where, where some of these genes that are associated with autism are converging. And is that um, a, a 
future target that we, uh, that we can explore? The answer, of course, is uh, an unequivocal yes. And that's what you'll hear in Dr. State's talk, that um, as molecular genetics is bringing us new tools and new uh, potential targets, um, that it's going to change the game dramatically in terms of the opportunity to develop therapeutics from the inside out, as opposed to the uh, Marco Polo compass that I'm showing you here. So um, our progress to date has been limited, both um, by our ability to capture change and to identify um, outcomes of interest, as well as narrowing in on our targets. Um, Although the diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder is very reliable, like, like the wetlands, it's very heterogeneous. And the boundaries around the disorder are going to be redrawn. It could very well be the case that um, what we currently think of as autism becomes a disorder that includes autism, ADHD, anxiety symptoms in one group, and includes autism, sleep disturbance, and um, hyperactivity in another group, and that those core features of autism become much less important uh, as they are part of a multiple, uh, way, multiple different ways of expressing what the underlying pathophysiology is. So where the field is taking us is uh, GPS, that molecular genetics is going to uh, hand us the ability to know exactly where we are in the wetlands. And that is going to accelerate the development of more specific therapeutics that move us out and where we need to be. It's a really exciting time in the field of autism therapeutics development and one that is long overdue. Thank you for the opportunity to present today.